You're listening to The ProfCast, brought to you by Prof Magazine. In this episode, we're having a discussion with a couple about the challenges of and misconceptions about being transgender and being in a relationship with a transgender person. Here's Suzette Goulat with our guests, Melanie and Daniel. Melanie and Daniel, uh, welcome to ProfCast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. So this conversation is part of our recent newsletter, Proflet, uh, that's focusing on the word trans, various versions of the word trans, or a lot of words that begin with the word trans. And so one of the very important uh, words we wanted to focus on and, and issues we wanted to focus on is transgender. And so uh, the both of you very kindly agreed to talk about uh, this issue with me today. And so um, I would like to begin, though, with just your background. If you could just tell us a little bit about yourselves um, and uh, kind of you know where you come from, what your experience has been. And, and then maybe a little bit about how you met, and uh, and we'll go from there. Melanie, would you like to start? Sure. Um, I identify as a lesbian. I've known that since a very young age, um, but given being born in 1968, didn't know that there was a label for that um, until I joined the Marine Corps and actually found that there was a, an entire gay community. Um, but at the time, that was not um, an option to live openly in the military, so I ended up marrying a friend of mine, a male, had two beautiful children, and then um, struggled throughout that marriage with deep depression, which then resulted in me making a decision to live my truth, um, resulting in a divorce, of course, and moving forward um, with with myself. Great. How about you, Danny? Um, I, I also grew up in the 60s, early 60s. Uh, I vocalized my gender identity at about age seven or eight. Um, I had a sister who, what at the time I thought was hyper-feminine, but she was really just a girl. And uh, my mother gave me a chore that said dishes, and um, unapologetically, I was born a chauvinist, I guess, and I said, dishes are women's work, and I'm not doing the dishes. And my mother was very displeased with that statement, so I learned at that moment to never say that again. So I kept it to myself and uh, really tried to maneuver my way through life knowing this but not vocalizing and uh, it led me to uh, 16 years of alcoholism, um, getting into a very um, damaging marriage and then getting sober in 1998, uh, realizing that I have to at least identify as being lesbian because I was attracted to women. Tried to join the lesbian community, uh, still did not fit in there. Uh, Became brave enough in 2008 to look into starting the transition and began the transition in 2008. So then the two of you met later. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about how you met and, and you know, the, the, the issue then of, of Dan, your transition and how that um, ultimately affected or how you, particularly Melanie, thinking you were in a lesbian relationship and you, Daniel, uh, ultimately transitioning and then feeling that you're in a straight relationship. How, how this, how, how we should characterize that? How would you characterize uh, this? So can you tell us about your, how you met in that, in that process? Sure. We met, we both worked for a public school system um, and uh, after I was divorced, really, I was attracted to her at the time um, before my divorce and then really started on a relationship to uh, be together and were together, uh, created a life as a family with my two daughters. And then within two years of that relationship, um, Daniel said that it was necessary 
you know, disclosed that his gender identity um, journey needed to happen in order for him to be a viable person. And so I um, took a deep breath and decided I would take uh, one day at a time with him through through that process. And um, we really didn't make any promises to one another in regard to what the outcome of our relationship would be. I did say I would be a supportive element regardless if we stayed together as a couple. Um, but here we are as a couple. Yeah, uh, I was, I knew that she was very, um, to use lack of a better word, excited about, you know, being a lesbian and in that relationship. And it was, it was a successful relationship, except my depression was getting so great that um, I was almost becoming agoraphobic. And I, I mean, I didn't want to socialize. I wasn't going out places. And, and I finally told her that I think for my mental health and for our relationship, honestly, that I needed to do this. And I was willing, and I won't speak for all transgender people, but I was willing to lose everything. I was willing to lose my family, willing to lose my relationships, to do what I needed to do in order to survive. I mean, there's a lot of soft suicide that goes on out there, thoughts of it, and you know, knowing that you would be in a better place or people would be better without you and, and, and those things. So through counseling, a lot of counseling, we went together. Um, we took the journey one step at a time. And, and you know, Melanie's being uh, you know, polite about it, but she said that she wouldn't make me any promises and that it was something that, you know, she needed to go through as well. And, and that's another thing that people don't understand is when you go on the journey, you take everyone with you. Some people will keep going with you and some people won't. So she agreed to go on the journey and it's been 10 years, 12 years, 12 years. Sorry. It's been 12 years and uh, <laughs> it's all good. Well, I just have to um, say, first of all, I, I'm just I'm so appreciate your sharing your story, particularly because it seems like there's this this added layer of um, complications. I mean, as if it isn't complicated and sometimes challenging enough to live in in a, in a gay community, as I think as you're re referencing, Melanie. Um, but then adding the the extra complication and potential potential you know layer of confusion regarding your uh, transgender, Daniel, because, um, you know, people I've, like I'm sitting across the table from you and I see you look, you look like a heterosexual mm -hmm. couple. Right. And so I imagine in, in society you've got you've, you've led this life of all of these different pressures and, and you know, struggles and need, need to, you know, challenges regarding needing to conform and meet certain expectations. And yet you sit here looking like you absolutely do. Right. And, and yet you, you've clearly got this this incredible story that uh, must be um, in some ways uh, really inspirational and to share and and in some ways really challenging to to live because of the confusion does it do you do you, do you feel like it's confusing to people do they not understand or get this when what is it that we really need to know and understand about these issues I think what I would like people to know and understand is that when people tell you what they are, whether it's in regard to their relationship orientation or their personal gender identity or whatever information they give you, it, then take that as their truth and move forward with that. And don't try to um, imagine or investigate and dig into um, selfish 
understanding, the pursuit of your own understanding and curiosity. It's damaging, can be damaging, um, and it doesn't always result in clarity. This is complicated. It's complicated. People don't understand that I still identify as lesbian. Daniel, my partner, does not um, define my orientation. That's my definition. I don't define his gender. That's his gender identity. Um, he identifies as straight. I don't define that either. I think that's a lot to um, digest without a baseline of information or um being educated so just go with what a person tells you and move on and accept them as their person presenting themselves to you and it'll believe me you can get through it and i think um you know it's a tough situation whether to wait to be an advocate or to just have what everyone else has and have a private life you know, uh, Melly and I struggle with this, and obviously today we're advocates. You know, um, tomorrow we might not be, and it's it's tough for me because once it's out there, you cannot take it back. You know, and I don't know if next week I'll be let go for being five minutes late, and it's not that. It's whatever, you know, they feel about me or judge me. So, you know, that is something that's been very, very tough for me. And I've come to realize, though, that I think the importance of talking to people about this and saying, look, I am a result, not that I'm the most successful or the most handsome, but I am handsome, um, man yeah. out there, that you can have a life on the other side. You know, you can be successful. You can have a family. You can pay taxes like everyone else. And it's okay. And I think if I hide myself, I'm, I'm not, I'm doing a disservice to those that are struggling. Um, but yet again, I'm putting myself out there and it, it's a chance you have to take. So, you know, today I'm willing. <laughs> well, and I thank you for that. And, and I think our audience will thank you for that. The, com the community will thank you for that. But I wonder, um, I mean, both of you work on a college campus. Um, yes. and, and the extent to which maybe there's a little what what is the impact of that? I think you know. Obviously, I've spent my entire adult life on a college campus, first as a student, then as a, a professor and an administrator, and so I can imagine there might be maybe some level of comfort in terms of being able to be open about these sorts of things on a college campus. But I can also see there 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 are also some, you know, campuses are just part of society like any any other part of society. So um, how has working at a university influenced your um, interest in being an advocate? and your willingness to share your private life? For me personally, I specifically sought out employment in higher education because I felt that it would be a more open-minded environment and culture that would at least embrace um, investigating these things and supporting um, others. And so for me, it was a strategic move to join um, a higher ed as a career. And it has definitely been what I thought it would be. It is an, an opportunity um, of learning, right? It's, a, it's an environment where we can explore what we don't know in the spirit of gaining knowledge and understanding and at least hopefully cultivate a culture that just allows people to be them um, regardless of whatever their identities are. Um, so for me, it was strategic. And I will say... Living in a town with 
a higher education institution was paramount in terms of how I felt comfortable as a family unit as well. Um, having two daughters, as I mentioned before, first being in a lesbian couple, which very identifiable. I felt safe here. I felt like my children would be safe here. Um, and so that was, you know, um, a result of being in an area with higher level thinking, perhaps. Um, I enjoyed too. I didn't seek it out. I, I'm, I've actually considered myself very lucky and privileged to be able to work here at the university. Um, I do appreciate seeing other transgender people um, and seeing them move about freely amongst the others. And I feel like there's a little level of protection. You know, we do have federal agencies, you know, Title IX and, and all that stuff to, to protect me. But um, I, like, like Melanie said, it's also a way of speaking more intellectually about it and not having to answer some pretty basic, you know, questions that you typically hear. People might be more interested in hearing uh, uh, the, the advocacy part or what we can do to make things better. So the environment is definitely uh, more positive. So on that note, Daniel, the, you mentioned that there are protections and that you feel like it's, it's less risky in this type of environment, but we all know that many of these protections are at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I imagine, you know, those, it, it will depend heavily on like which state you're in, maybe which institution you're at, which department you may be in. I mean, there may be all kinds of, of things that will affect um, that risky nature, those protections being at risk. But it seems like, so I want to ask about the misconceptions about um, these issues, the misconceptions about, you, you know, your identity and your orientation and your relationship, the misconceptions that people have, because that seems to be the root of some of the, you know, the root of most of the negative attention and the anger and the hatred. I mean, what, what is it that we don't well understand or that we need to, to, you know, educate others about in order to protect these very important uh, protections, I guess, and, 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 you know, uh, rights? Well, if, if I could answer that, um, I think one of the most upsetting things for me is when people ask me, when did you know? Well, at first I thought, well, that's a simple, curious question. But then it's a challenge. They're challenging me. It's almost like they're calling me untruthful. You know, so, well, if you've known that long, why didn't you do anything about it? You know, everyone's life is different and it's situational. In 1964, I don't think it's something you could run around and be an advocate for. And, you know, I I was married. It's embarrassing to me. It's shameful that I was in that because I ruined a lot of people's lives. But people said, well, why did you get married? I don't know why I got married. You know, I was an alcoholic at the time. So when people start questioning the the decisions I've made, I think it's, it's truly unfair because none of us can make the right decision every time. And I'm just grateful that I'm here now. And I think that's what people need to really focus on is, wow, you went through that. And, you know, what's next? And, and how, how are you looking forward? Instead of dwell, dwelling on, you know, they want to see pictures of what I used to look like. And, you know, I, I kind of, in a very, very simple way, I want to say, well, were you ever heavier than you are now? Or did you ever have a bad haircut? Let me see those pictures. Because what does that, why do you need a reference, you know? So that's a little bit upsetting to me that it's not in a more positive direction when people find out. 
I think um, in terms of safety um, or even the violence against LGBTQ communities, especially the transgender community, it, it's related to the misconception of deviance and deception, that there's something deviant about um, identifying as so and that there's a, a notion that, that there's a harmful or um, perception that you, you want to mislead people on purpose or you want, you know, you're a predator of some sort or you're in this category of, of um, just horrible categories. And they're unrelated. That's all fear-based coming from um, a lack of understanding. And I really, that's, that's a challenge to sift through and try and categorize why that spills over into someone's gender identity. This is a hard discussion for me to have, you know. Um, I think part of the reason why I wanted to have this conversation is obviously because I'm inherently curious and I, 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 I want to, to learn and know things and I want to be supportive. And I guess maybe that's where I would go next is as somebody who's learning about these things and is knowing you as, as people, seeing you, I, I want to be able to, to advocate as well. I want to be able to show my support. I want to be able to share um, your story. And, I, and again, thank you so much for being willing to do that because uh, the, the more people, I think, discuss and talk about this, it breaks the silence about it. Um, I've written about other things, you know, regarding private things that, you know, breaking the silence is so important to being able to move us ahead and make progress on these issues. And so your willingness to to not be silent and to... Um, tell your story is so so critical but what is it that that someone like me I mean you obviously are advocates you're living it day in day out you 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 and, and sometimes you can't even help to be an advocate some of the things I've experienced in the past I can't help but be an advocate because I've experienced them those of us who aren't experiencing them other than through our relationships <laughs> with others um how can how can we support? What is what is it? What is the kind of support that we need to cultivate uh, to protect people in terms of safety? Melanie, you mentioned um, in terms of laws and uh, you know things like being fired, being protected on the job. Daniel, like you mentioned, where should we go in terms of making sure that we have proper support? Where do we start? What's the root of that? What can we do for someone who is a strong advocate in, in our community on and off campus. I think our focus, my focus is for people to seek the truth. And when you hear the truth from those people living it, that you accept that's the truth. That's the only way to dispel the myths that are harmful to not only the individuals that live in the LGBTQ community, but it, it strangles the ability to change, change perception, to adopt fact and let go of um, myths. The myths are harmful about any group of people. They're the ones that the myths are perpetuate the stereotypes that keep people oppressed. So to move to a truth allows people to come away from that into fact and then they can build a community based off of and by addressing the actual needs of those people, not what you think and not what you have assumed they need. 
um, and not making light of even the most simple opportunities to extend a safe environment, um, such as bathrooms. Not going to go any deeper than that, but it seems simple, but it is profound to the people that need to use the appropriate restroom. Um, so I would say as an advocate, your first step is, or in, uh, trying to be an ally, is to seek the facts and accept those and move forward and change your dialogue with others to um, cultivate conversations that open up spaces, open up opportunity to actually move, you know, this movement forward. Um, I, I, I will touch on the bathroom for a second because I'm sure it's on everyone's mind. Um, <clears throat> segregating bathrooms is not the answer because now you've just segregated me again. I don't need my own bathroom. What I need is people just to accept that we all have human needs to go to the bathroom and that I will go to according to the law. Um, you know, there are some transgender people that look like myself but have not changed their gender marker yet because of laws. There's certain things in place you have to do to get your gender marker changed. So, for example, if you walk into a Walmart restroom opposite of your gender, you will be arrested. There are laws. Trust me, I want to go into the most appropriate restroom as I can so that I can just go about my business. Um, let's spend our time and effort and monies on counseling, on getting hormone replacement therapy for people, for appropriate housing, for getting jobs for people. That's where it needs to be talked about because it is a class of people that are being discriminated against. I'm very fortunate to pass what's called passing. You know, people don't know I'm trans. Um, some people are not fortunate, and they are being discriminated against daily. So that's where our efforts need to go. And if you know somebody trans, just treat them as any other friend. You know, um, I don't need the gossip. I don't need to be special. I don't need to. I don't need pity. You know, I just want to hang out like everyone else and have a group of positive friends. So I want to touch on the healthcare piece because I don't think I think this is definitely an area where most people don't understand the process. So when Daniel says that he's fortunate, um, I want to put some clarity on that. The clarity is that in order to go through a legal process to live in your gender through your documentation as any other human being that has documentation, there is a requirement for. Um, a medical process there's there's a and the timeline varies on the person so it's first counseling and then through the counseling then it's letters of support that you need to take to a doctor to have hormone therapy and then it's also letters of those two individuals to get surgeries so none of those things well the surgeries are not covered by health care um, that match your gender meaning a male couldn't have a hysterectomy right so you have to be female. There has to be a match there. So expecting your expectations, why can't you this or why don't you this, I don't think people understand the true struggle. And if you can't have a viable employment, then you can't afford to pay out of pocket for these and have access to the things you need to live as you are. That is a problem in our society, is a denied access to a person's personhood. 
As we conclude our conversation today, Melanie and Daniel, I mean, I have to tell you, I don't know if you know who Lin-Manuel Miranda is of the um, Hamilton fame. He's the composer and writer and producer of, of that of that um, musical, of which I've been really uh, lucky to see. But as I was preparing to have this conversation with you today, I kept thinking of his latest um he won a Tony Award in 2016 for Hamilton, and he gave a very poetic and emotional acceptance speech in which he said, um, hate and fear seem stronger, and that love is love is love is love is love is love is love, cannot be killed or swept aside. And the hope is that love will last longer. And I can't watch that episode. I can barely even talk about that that little speech without being emotional because love is love is love is love is love and so what is your hope here at the end of this discussion what is your hope for helping us make it clear you making it clear all of us making it clear that love is love is love is love and that hope the hope is is that love will last longer for me if I would not have pursued self-love I would not be here If I did not have love from my family, especially my daughters, I wouldn't be here. If I wouldn't have pursued my truth, I wouldn't have found the love that I have in Daniel. If I wouldn't have loved my female partner at the time enough to go on this journey, I wouldn't have Daniel. So yeah, love is love is love is love. I I hope mine is twofold. One, that anyone that is listening that is trans, that there is hope. And anybody that is listening that has some kind of hate or fear of of trans people will understand that we are people. Um, it's, It's about character. It's about love. And it's about just letting, you know, live and let live and there's far more more worries and concerns out there for us than who i'm married to or how i present my gender melanie and daniel thank you so much i don't think you realize how important uh it is to share this in your voice in your voices so that we hear it from you and i I just thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for letting us come in. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Profcast. You can find more episodes of The Profcast at www.profmagazine.com.